today on Against the Grain. Retirement is something that most of us don't think much about during our working lives, hoping we'll have enough to live on when the time comes. But chances are, unless we're lucky, we won't. James Russell argues that the widespread shortfall in retirement income is the result of a bipartisan effort going back decades to move our savings away from traditional pensions to accounts like 401ks that enrich the financial services industry at our expense. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. We're told that in retirement, we should not depend exclusively on Social Security, as people do in many countries on their national pension, but instead plan to get two-thirds of our retirement income from employer-sponsored pensions and personal savings. Many jobs, however, offer no pensions. And the traditional pension has been replaced in many positions by 401ks, in which the individual worker saves and invests money without the safety of pooling one's resources with fellow workers. In the Labor Guide to Retirement Plans for Union Organizers and Employees, James Russell explores the brewing crisis in retirement savings and the pressing need to expand Social Security. Jim, when we discuss retirement savings in any form, we're talking about massive amounts of money. So where those savings end up obviously has broad social significance. Can you give us a sense of the enormity of money involved in Social Security and pensions and what you describe as a class war to transfer such money to the financial services industry? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, Social Security is absolutely the largest uh, retirement uh, program in the country, and I would argue, in general terms, the most successful one. It has several trillion dollars in its uh, trust fund, um, and and you have to add to that uh, the amount of money that just kind of goes right through the trust fund and doesn't stay there because it goes right out as benefits. So it's a huge amount of money. Uh, Then you have a number of very large pension funds in the country, of which CalPERS is one of them, the the California Public Employees System, uh, retirement system. Uh, And uh, then on top of that, um, you have all of the money that goes into 401ks and similar plans. Uh, The total amount of that uh, I do not have off the top of my head, uh, but it is trillions and trillions of dollars. What happens to that money uh, is what I think of in terms of a class war. Uh, The the private financial services industry makes an enormous amount of money off of managing uh, many of those uh, retirement funds, which is essentially the collective retirement savings of American working people. And uh, that's one of the one of the reasons why it has expanded so much and contributed to what economists call financialization in the economy is because of the transfer from traditional pensions in the, up until the early 1980s to 401k type plans. I think there's a direct cause and effect relationship there. So whether the all of that money is controlled in workers' interests or controlled in a way uh, to maximize profits for uh, the financial services industry is one way to look at it as a class war. We're told that at retirement, we should draw on three sources of retirement funds, three-legged stool is the metaphor, Social Security on the one hand, which is the national pension system, but two others, employer-sponsored pensions and personal savings. Can you tell us about this idea of the three-legged stool? We're told we cannot expect to draw from just one of them and what the other two legs are uh, beyond Social Security. Well, the three-legged stool is is one of those great popular metaphors 
um, that turns out to be not a very good metaphor. Uh, the idea of it is that uh, people would have roughly equal amounts of money coming from Social Security, from a, plan, a retirement plan through their work, and then savings. But if you look at the situation of people today, very few people have any uh, significant source of retirement income from savings. So it's no longer a three-legged stool, it's a two-wheeled bicycle, maybe. Um, and if you look at the other two sources, uh, by far the largest source is Social Security. Um, there's a good percentage of people for whom that is the only source of their retirement income. Uh, the people who are doing the best are those that have a very strong uh, employer-based retirement plan that provides the bigger part of their retirement income. But that is, a, at this point, a minority of people who are in retirement. And unlike some countries where the national pension would be what you would expect to retire on, Social Security uh, in this model is supposed to only provide a third, although you write in uh, your book that for a lot of people, they can't even expect that depending on their salary over time. Can you describe that for us? Sure. Um, if you look at uh, it's it's a whole question of the statistics of it being um, seemingly clear, but not at all clear when you delve into it. And yeah, I was kind of misled by it also, because if you uh, Social Security um, by their figures says that it replaces about 40% of people's income when they retire on average. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good, uh, but um, you have to now make some distinctions. What Social Security is talking about is 40% of average career income. It's not talking about final income. And so if you're someone like most people who started off um, earning minimum wage or you know something just above that in your first jobs um, and then worked your way up to an average amount of income or maybe a high amount of income, um, you're not going to get uh, an amount based on that last income, that last high or average income. It'll be averaged out over your whole career, so it'll be less. Okay, the, the Social Security statistic then assumes that uh, people uh, have always had an average income. Okay when it says that the average amount is 40%. So um, in my case, um, I'm retired now. Uh, I uh, found out that I wouldn't get 40%. I would get something like 19%, okay, because I had jobs that bounced all over the place in terms of income in my career. And when it all averaged out, it came to about 19% of my final income. And so that was considerably less than I had expected. Well, tell us about your own story then. You were, upon retirement, a decently paid academic who had contributed well more than the average worker usually does over three decades into a 401k plan. When it came time for your retirement, what did you find? Well, my situation um, was in some ways a very unusual situation, in other ways, very usual situation. It was unusual uh, because I was involved in a struggle in the state of Connecticut um, to be able to transfer our 401k accumulations into the state pension plan and receive a pension instead of what you would get from the 401k. So I was in a position really to compare and I did it like a hawk uh, because I, I was leading that struggle. I had to talk all over the state. I had to present fig, you know, facts and figures uh, to people. So I was able to do that type of comparison. 
And I, I knew what I would have gotten with, with, if I had stayed in the 401k type plan and what I got from the, what, what I did eventually get from the state pension plan. So uh, with the 401k plan, um, I was in it for about 35 years. Um, I uh, was contributing about 13% of salary to it. Um, that was between my employer and me. My employer contributed 8%. I contributed 5%. And that's much higher than most people contribute to 401ks. So my savings rate was very high. Nobody could say I wasn't saving enough. Um, then the other part that, that um, seems to uh, a lot of people think of, it, well, maybe you didn't uh, invest well. Well, in fact, uh, my average rate of uh, return was 7.2%, which is pretty good. Uh, it wasn't because I was a great investor. It was because I was lucky. So I had high rate of return and a high rate of savings, but I still came up very much short in terms of achieving uh, about 70% of my pre-retirement income, which is what um, financial advisors uh, recommend as the goal for people. And that 70%, I should add, is combined Social Security plus the 401k. I was actually at, I think, around 45%, not nowhere near the 70% if I had stayed with the 401k type plan. Now, one of the things that uh, I, I did a lot of what-if scenarios. Okay, what if um, I had actually um, saved at a higher rate? How much higher would I have had to have saved? I would have had to have saved uh, between 25 and 30% of my salary in order to achieve that 70% goal, which I think is totally unrealistic. I mean, you know, at the time I, I was raising a family, a children's sport, uh, you know, a house to buy, uh, you know, college education to pay for, all of the expenses that, that people have who even have a, a pretty, you know, decent paying job, which I, which I did have. So I, I think the system essentially does not work. It's a very inefficient way to get retirement income. And we'll talk more about the complexities of things like the 401k, but I wonder if you could tell us about the origins of these different forms of retirement income. Let's just start for historical chronology with the origins of Social Security. Where does Social Security come from and how did it evolve in the United States? Well, Social Security is a very interesting story that uh, begins in Germany in the 1870s and 1880s when the uh, very conservative Chancellor Bismarck is looking for a way to get German workers to have some sort of loyalty to the German state at a time when um, the Social Democratic Party, which is a semi-Marxist party, um, is growing in electoral strength. And, and he knows that one of the big problems that people have um, is that if they retire from work, um, they have no income. And so, so what do you do about that? Uh, and this is really the shift from families being able to take care of older members to um, needing some other source of income. And so he and his advisors, not him, uh, but his advisors, come up with a social insurance scheme, okay, which is that uh, the German state will tax people um, that will go into a collective fund and then eligible workers when they retire will receive some retirement income. And that's, that's really the beginning. Okay, um, that is quickly uh, embraced by 35 other countries okay, after the 1880s. Uh, and then you get to the United States in 1935 when the Roosevelt administration um, does exactly the same uh, model, a social insurance model. Uh, 
Now, there had been groups in the United States that had been lobbying for something like that since around 1895. Uh, and so there was a whole infrastructure of people who knew a lot about how the social insurance plans worked so that when Rose, the Roosevelt administration decided to do that, um, you know, it ha a lot of the work had already been done. And so they put Social Security into place. And then Social Security then became reformed over the years, including a cost of living adjustment, adding disability income to it, uh, providing for survivors. Okay, all of the other great features that it has today have, have been added since 1935. And so that's, that's the story of, of Social Security, you know, very briefly. It's a very fascinating story. James Russell is my guest. We're discussing his book, The Labor Guide to Retirement Plans for Union Organizers and Employees. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, Social Security has been around for a long time. More recently, and in its early decades in the United States, it was popular and pretty controversial. But then in the waning decades of the 20th century, there were attempts to formulate a, a rationale for privatizing Social Security, going back to the likes of economist Milton Friedman. Can you tell us about the justification for privatizing Social Security and, and how it unfolded? Sure, um, because that's one of the, the great struggles I think people have to be on guard against. Um, it's off the table at the moment, but it could well come back on the table. So, um, you know, as you say, uh, the Eisenhower administration, Republican administration, found Social Security totally uncontroversial. Okay. Meanwhile, a heterodox conservative economist, Milton Friedman, is arguing against Social Security on several grounds. One is that Social Security um, distributes its uh, benefits in a progressive form. Um, the less uh, you make, um, the greater the amount of income that's replaced by Social Security. And it was intended to do that to try to make a dent in elderly poverty. And in doing that, it was spectacularly successful. If there were no Social Security, the elderly poverty rate would be around 40% now. But because of Social Security, the actual uh, poverty rate among elderly people is about 9%. So it has reduced that poverty. It's been successful. Friedman didn't like that because he didn't think the government had any right to redistribute um, the contributions that people made to, to the program. The bigger reason that he was opposed to it was that all of this money that was being collected for Social Security was going through government coffers. Uh, it was not going through Wall Street, uh, going through private investment. And uh, Friedman, being conservative, neoliberal, uh, very much uh, was opposed to government in any way interfering with the private market. So uh, he, you know, began writing articles and then whole books attacking Social Security. That got picked up by private um, uh, think tanks, including the Cato Institute that Friedman himself was associated with. Uh, and then they began lobbying politicians um, to try to privatize the system. And that campaign begins around 1980. At the same time, um, internationally, uh, we have a military dictatorship in Chile, um, which uh, all of its major economic figures are uh, disciples of Milton Friedman, uh, embracing a neoliberal model, uh, including one man by the name of Jose Piñera, who was a Harvard graduate, not University of Chicago, but was had studied under people in Chile uh, who were um, students of Milton Friedman. And Piñera um, 
privatized the Chilean system, okay? And that became the first country in the world to um, privatize like that. And then after that, um, Chilean advisors uh, went all over Latin America and ended up privatizing about half of Latin American retirement systems. Then when the communist countries collapsed in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, they then targeted the retirement systems there. So there was this wave of privatization around the world. Very interestingly, um, it failed. Okay, uh, It failed, uh, as we now kind of know the reasons why it failed. But at the time, people didn't. Uh, at the time, people were being told that they would make much more income in retirement from a privatized system than from the traditional social insurance model. Well, I would say by about uh, the year 2000, the changing of the millennium, um, it became very clear uh, because you had now had generations of people trying to retire under these privatized accounts that they were doing much, much worse than they would have uh, been doing under a social insurance model. And for that reason, um, in Chile, hundreds of thousands of people have come out in the streets um, demanding a return to their social insurance, um, social security-like system. And you know, it's, it's been a big issue in Chile since about um, 2000. And other countries have actually reversed the privatization, including Bolivia, Argentina, uh, a number of the Central and Eastern European countries. James Russell is my guest. His area of expertise is retirement in the United States, Europe, and Latin America, and he's the author of The Labor Guide to Retirement Plans. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So in the early 2000s, I guess, during this period that you mentioned, George W. Bush made an attempt to partially privatize Social Security. Tell us about that and if it indicates to you how opponents of Social Security now would try to privatize Social Security in this country if such a deeply unpopular event took place. Well, I think um, the way to understand um, the struggle over Social Security uh, is to go back to um, 1994 and the publication by the World Bank of um, a study called Averting the Old Age Crisis, which was written by Estelle James, who is now in a very conservative think tank. And in that, it uh, essentially proposed privatizing uh, big state-run social insurance um, systems. Um, it did allow for a, a certain amount of anti-poverty programs in that, but for most people, uh, they were supposed to rely upon um, savings and investments for their retirement income. Um, that was an enormously influential uh, publication. And uh, I, every time there's an attempt to reform Social Security in a regressive way, I can find the page in, in that, you know, that uh, report that is very um, consistent uh, with that. So you ended up in the 1990s with um, Republicans embracing privatization. Uh, and then um, a number of Democrats actually flirting with it. So that by um, 1998, you basically had two approaches to how to get more money out of Social Security and into Wall Street, to put it bluntly. Okay, one uh, was the Republican approach, which would be to divert some of the contributions that were going into Social Security and send them to investments instead. And that's what Bush did in, uh, or tried to do in 2005. And I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the Democrats are not totally uh, free in this. 
uh, because they then embraced a series of what are called add-on uh, proposals. That is, instead of diverting money from Social Security, they would uh, have people pay more money, okay, which would then go into private accounts. Okay, and we've, we saw that in the Obama administration, um, a number of um, Democrat-led uh, states have attempted to do that on the state level. Now, you might think, well, that's okay just to add on a savings account, but that's money that then is not available to go into a social insurance account, which would produce much more income for people than a private account. So it's still a, a Wall Street friendly type proposal, even though it's coming out from Democrats. Um, so anyway, back to Bush. So uh, in 2004, when he wins re-election, he announces that he's going to spend some of his now newly gained political capital on his top domestic agenda, which will be to partially privatize Social Security in the United States. In that process, um, he was uh, he uh, met with Jose Piñera, <laughs> the person who had privatized the Chilean system, and was still claiming that it was enormously successful when people in Chile did not agree that it was successful by 2004. But nevertheless, he was still, you know, tooting that horn. So um, Bush then uh, sets out to convince the American public that this is a great idea, uh, that this will be a part of the ownership society, that the government won't control your retirement, you'll control it, it'll be yours, and nobody can take away for it, so forth. And so he, he, he barnstorms the country, but the more he talks about it, the more convinced people are that it's a bad idea. Uh, now, granted, there was a lot of organizing by labor unions and senior groups and church groups to oppose this privatization. I mean, it didn't just happen. Okay, but Bush could not overcome that opposition, and by August of 2005, they abandoned the privatization plan. So um, there have been now fallback proposals Okay, after that, and we can get into that if you want to. Well, we often read in the media that Social Security is in danger of running out of money. And of course, that's used politically. What's the reality? Well, the reality is that any social insurance fund has to be continually adjusted to make sure that um, the amount that it's dispersing in benefits is matched by the amount that it has in revenue coming into it. I mean, that's just part of it. Okay? It should be actually adjusted every single year. But the way that it works here is it doesn't get adjusted until Congress um, decides to adjust it. And so they often delay adjusting it until it becomes a you know, more serious issue. What the situation is now is that um, every, every year there's a trustees report okay, that then estimates based on all kinds of factors of how long people are living, how many, you know, what the benefits are that people are going to have, what the, what the income of Social Security. And their estimate is that by the year 2031, um, that if nothing is done, um, Social Security will have to start reducing its benefits to about 80%. Okay? It's not going bankrupt. Okay? It's not a collapse or anything like that, but it would have to reduce it to 80%. Now, I don't think either Republicans or Democrats want that to happen, um, but um, neither one seems to be totally uh, seeing a need to act upon it right now. Actually, that's not entirely true. I mean, there are democratic proposals, okay? And there are always proposals, but whether um, they have any legs to them and they, they're actually gonna be passed is another question entirely. And it doesn't look like for a number of years that there'll actually be a adjustment of social 
security. Okay, but just because it's going to run low on money is no indication that the model doesn't work. I mean, that's expected um, that you have to continually adjust it. Okay, so that's social security, one leg, if you will, of the three-legged stool of retirement income, um, the biggest leg or the longest leg. So let's now talk about pensions. Now, of course, not everyone has an employer-sponsored pension, but I wonder if you can tell us about the origin of traditional pensions and how you define them. Yeah, I, um, I think the meaning of the word is very important because there's um, a certain amount of confusion out there, some of it intentionally spread. Um, a 401k is not a pension. What a 401k is, is a savings account that is invested. It's an individual account. What a pension is, is a collective account uh, where people pay into a pool of money, okay, and then out of that pool of money, um, income is given to retirees for the rest of their lives. Um, it, pe people who have a pension do not have to worry about running out of money. Okay? They know what they're going to have, whether they live a few years or whether they, li they live for a very, very long time. It's guaranteed. It has a legal guarantee to it. Uh, with a retirement savings account like a 401k, there is no guarantee of anything with it. Um, it just all depends upon how much money you have been able to accumulate as to how many years of retirement you can support and at what level. So that definition is very important, okay, or, and that distinction. Uh, up until around 1980, if you had a uh, retirement plan at work, and only about half of people had them, okay, I don't want to argue that there was a golden age of retirement. There wasn't. Okay, but for those people who did have retirement plans, which was about half the labor force, there were most likely pension plans. Um, and so that's what they retired under. All of that has changed um, since the 1980s. And now it's a minority of the labor force that have pension plans. Now, I think you did ask kind of where, where these come from. Um, pension plans go back hundreds of years. Uh, where governments uh, would often uh, give a, a guaranteed income to loyal civil servants. Um, after the uh, War of Independence, uh, soldiers who had fought in it received pensions. Congress granted them pensions. After the Civil War, uh, soldiers similarly received pensions. Uh, so it seems like pensions basically started in the public sector. Then you get to um, the 1880s or so, and the big uh, railroad companies and others begin to offer pensions to certain employees there. And then that builds up uh, into the early decades of the 20th century, where more and more state governments are giving out pensions and then uh, private corporations have pensions, and, and again, that, that builds up until around 1980. Well, like Social Security running out of money, we often read about unfunded liabilities in employer-sponsored pension plans, especially with public sector workers, and how pensions are this huge problem, that they're a drain on public coffers. Tell us about that headline. Well, I mean, we have to make a distinction between um, the private corporate pensions um, and the uh, public pensions for municipal workers, for state employees, for um, federal workers, and, and military pensions also, I might, might add, with that. So starting with the, the private ones, um, a lot of people, I think, believe um, that uh, what happened is that they just became too expensive for employers, and then um, they switched over to 401ks that were less expensive. 
And that may well have been true in a number of cases because one of the advantages of a uh, 401k uh, is there's no requirement to fund it on the part of the employer. I mean, the employer can set it up and have the employees entirely make the contributions to it. Uh, and then uh, the employer might set it up originally with a 4% match, okay? That is that if the employee puts in 4% of their income, uh, the employer will put in 4%. And then, th then they're free to withdraw it. For example, in 2008, a number of major corporations simply stopped paying into their 401k plans. It was a kind of silent pay cut to people because their take-home take pay remained the same, okay, but um, their overall compensation was being reduced. But they didn't see it and they didn't think it was going to have any effect on them or it would be 20, 30 years later. They would, and, but believe me, it does have an effect when you, when you, you know, in terms of the total accumulation into those accounts. In a number of other cases uh, with private pensions, they were doing very, very well. Um, they were, uh, in a lot of cases, overfunded. They had more money in them than they needed to meet their uh, benefits to retiring workers. Uh, example that I use in the book is the Washington Post. Okay. The Washington Post had a pension plan that was funded at 140 percent. Okay. I mean, it's an enormously wealthy pension plan. It had more than enough to meet all of its obligations. So Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame buys the Washington Post and, and ends the pension plan. Okay, and you ask, why would you end a successful pension plan? Okay, and uh, the reason is that um, the courts have held that if you have something like the Washington Post pension plan with a, with a surplus amount of money in it, that the employer is free to use that surplus uh, in a different way so long as it benefits the workers. So it means you can move that 40% to pay the medical benefit, okay? And, you know, and yes, it benefits the workers, okay? But, um, you know, it means they no longer have a pension plan and they're, they're going to have a 401k type plan. Um, actually, it, it was a, it's a cash balance plan that they got, okay, which is another species out there. They'll have that plan, which will pay them far less than they would have if they had stayed in the pension plan. And a, a number of corporations did that because you had very smart accountants and lawyers okay, examining ways to monetize surpluses in pension plans um, to help the bottom lines of the corporation, to increase its stock value, all the other sorts of things that happen in the, the capitalist game okay, with, with corporations. So that's, that's on the private side of it. Okay, with public pensions, okay, which are, I mean, public sector workers, okay, uh, most of them still have pension plans. And um, they have become the target now of um, the right-wing think tanks um, that want them to get 401ks instead, like the rest of the labor force. So they play a lot on pension envy. Okay, you know, why should these workers have this when you don't have it? Um, they argue that the pension plans are bankrupting states um, and they're taking money away from children, okay, money that could be spent on early, you know, education uh, for children uh, because they're too generous. Well, the reality is, is that what's happened um, is first, a number of states are in very good shape with their pension plans, okay? They're, they're, there's no problem financially with them. It is true that there are several states, uh, including Illinois, um, that do have large unfunded liabilities. But if you examine the states that have unfunded liabilities, inevitably it's because the legislature did not fund them properly um, and then that has the day of reckoning has come, 
Okay, it's it's like if you have a house that you're supposed to pay a mortgage on, and you skip mortgage payments, um, the, the amount of interest that you owe is going to accumulate very very rapidly. Okay, and you're going to be you know owing a lot more. Okay, by skipping those payments. So uh, in the case of states, they have to balance their budget. Okay, so if they have a shortfall. Um, shorting a payment to the to the pension plan is very tempting to do because it doesn't provoke an immediate crisis um, the the checks still go out um, and in fact no state in the history of the united states has ever failed to make its pension payments to its employees its retired employees okay but then it builds up this unfunded liability which then costs more and more money to to try to keep that at bay. And th that's, you know, the way in which the right wing spins that uh, is to not tell that it's, you know, it's not the fault of the state employees, okay? It's that they were actually kind of loaning to the state, uh, you know, money at, um, at interest-free, and that, that's, that's what it is. But relatively few people understand that. James Russell joins me. He's the author of The Labor Guide to Retirement Plans for Union Organizers and Employees. He's also the author of Social Insecurity. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you've talked about the traditional pensions, and I wanted to ask you about 401ks, which you've mentioned throughout. You've said that they are, although they're often referred to as pensions, really in actuality, they are employer-sponsored savings plans because they do not collectively pool the money of the employees' contributions and also pool the risk. Where did 401ks come from and why do you think that they are much less effective and stable than traditional pensions? Well, something like 401ks have been around since probably the 1920s. Um, I think that um, TIAA, okay, which is the plan that many academics have, uh, is originally a 401k type plan. Uh, uh, it didn't have that name to it, okay, but it, it kind of hovered in the background where most plans were traditional pensions. Um, then um, in the 1970s, um, several accountants and others begin playing uh, with an idea, um, how can we build up the third leg of the stool, the individual savings part of it? Uh, would it be possible for employers to help that along by giving as a benefit um, a certain percentage of the income that would go into an account that would be untaxed, okay, it would be tax deferred actually, okay, to encourage people to put money into this. And that's the origin of the 401k. Now, the 401k, uh, the original idea of it was that it was supposed to supplement pension plans. In 1981, okay, the first year of the Reagan administration, uh, some corporations began to play with the idea, huh, could we give, um, could we actually uh, grant them instead of a pension plan? Not as a supplement to a pension plan, but instead of. And they didn't really know whether that was legal uh, but then the Treasury Department issued a ruling saying that they could do that, and then the thing just took off like gangbusters in the 1980s where uh, pension plans were phased out um, and then you know, they were substituted with 401k-type plans. Now, for those people who are listening who are old enough to remember this, um, Lots of people, uh, when this started, thought that these were great. Okay, I mean, the you know, this was money that you controlled. This was money that 
And, and there were all kinds of models that were put out that showed that you would get a lot more money from them than a boring old pension plan. Uh, and and that's, that's what it was like in, in the 1980s. I mean, because people were excited. They had this new account and they could see all this money that was building up in it. Uh, but then when you get to around 2000 and people are starting to try to retire under these things, they begin to realize that they're getting far less than they would have gotten otherwise. And of course, most workers don't have the option of being in traditional pensions, which you're arguing are much better for the worker. And of course, most workers in this country are not in unions. So what would you advise them to do around these big retirement questions, including, you know, if their only options seem to be 401ks? Well, I, I think um, we have to make a distinction between people acting in terms of their own individual interest. Um, and in that case, um, their own individual interest if they can do it, might be to find a job that has a pension plan. Uh, I'm often asked by people who are in their 40s who have bounced around a number of jobs and are now realizing that they really have nothing in terms of retirement other than Social Security, you know, what they should do. And I'll often recommend, well, if you can do it, uh, if you can get a job for a state government, a municipality, um, or the federal government that has a pension plan and stick with that job for 20, 25 years, you'll probably be fine in retirement. But that's an individual solution, and certainly the whole labor force could not do that because the public sector is only a small part of the labor force. And so it becomes a question of what kind of national reforms uh, should we have. And um, what I think uh, the long-term goal is really to shift more and more contributions to retirement plans into pension-type plans. But um, the only way that I think that that can realistically happen is if you expand Social Security. So that, let's say, if we had a situation where an employer could offer to workers well, we can put we can either put your money in a 401k um, or we can send it to Social Security and they'll give you a bigger check in retirement um, than if you didn't send that money to them. Um, that would be a tremendous reform because it would be much more beneficial to people to put the money that now goes into employer accounts um, into Social Security and expansion of benefits. So that's, that's what I think um, is the long-term solution to this. What about some of the campaigns that are happening or attempts that are happening? I believe California Secure Choice is one of making nonprofit state-run savings accounts for the private sector, for private sector employees who might not have any plan at their workplace that they could, through the state, contribute to an IRA. Do you think that those are problematic or a step in the right direction? Well, Sasha, okay, I served on um, the, the statewide commission that tried that set one of those up in Connecticut. And uh, when it started, I thought um, there might be some ways to set it up in a way that would work. Uh, I was particularly interested in the whole annuity part of it. Well, none of that happened. And, and so now I'm essentially a critic of those plans um, because you might say they're harmless, but I don't think they're harmless. Number one is they give people the illusion um, that they're going to have a, a, a retirement plan that will be satisfactory when they retire. And first off, the amount of money that's being put into them is much too low to actually make a meaningful dent on retirement income needs. The other problem is, is that for a state to encourage people to put money in that direction means that it becomes much more difficult 
to then down the road say, maybe we should put more money into Social Security, okay, instead of the uh, 6.1% of salary per worker that goes in, maybe we should do it 8%, okay, but you've already set up this program that it's, that's taking money out of the paycheck, but this time putting it into private accounts. Um, well, let me end by asking you, as, as the population ages, do you feel like there is the political basis for people mobilizing around these questions? I mean, you write in your book that most Americans really are very fuzzy on retirement plans, the money involved, the stakes involved, and that even includes some people in in unions who don't really understand the significance of one choice over another. How do you see this moment politically? Well, the one thing that I think people realize massively is that Social Security should be protected. Uh, Every time there's a move against it, the resistance to it is is great and and it's impressive. Uh, so there is a realization that social security works um, and that they don't want to play with private, you know, ways to deal with it. And they also don't think that its benefits should be reduced. So that part, uh, I think, there's a broad public consciousness over it that's that's very very good. Um, it's the rest of it that um, it's all over the place in terms of understanding uh, the employer plans, in terms of understanding the 401k plans. Um, A lot of the motive for the book was that when I was involved in the struggle in in Connecticut, I I, uh, encountered all kinds of people, including, uh, you know, people in unions who were, as you put it, somewhat fuzzy Okay, about what was actually going on. Um, there were plenty of other people who had a lot of clarity. Jim, thank you for coming back on the program. Oh, it's been my pleasure. James Russell is the author of The Labor Guide to Retirement Plans for Union Organizers and Employees. That's published by Monthly Review Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He is also the author of Social Insecurity, which we spoke to him about several years ago, and his area of expertise is retirement in the United States, Europe, and Latin America. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.